Good morning, everyone. For those who don't know me, my name's Tom Barrett. I'm the Assistant Minister here at All Saints. And I wonder if you've ever been to a party that has gone on longer than expected. A party where everyone's having such a good time that they just kick on, they don't look at the clock. Before you know it, the neighbours are complaining. Been to one of those parties? You might not realise that that's what's going on at All Saints right now. On Easter Sunday, we started celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And here we are, two weeks later, the party is still going. We've taken two extra Sundays to talk about the resurrection and marvel at what it means for us. Now, last week, we started by thinking about the headline of the gospel. If I say gospel, what do you think of? If I say gospel and you think, Jesus died for my sins, then that's true and that's important. But in the Bible, that is not the headline. In the Bible, the headline of the gospel is that Christ is risen. Last week, we looked at the connection between Jesus' resurrection and Christian hope. Because Jesus is risen, our hope as his followers is solid. It's hope that's embodied, transformed and glorious because Jesus has risen as the first fruits. That was last Sunday. Today, we're going to think about the resurrection and Christian action. You and I live between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. And as we live in these in-between times, what is there for us to do? Is there anything significant for us to do? If you have a trimmed down junior edition low calorie gospel that says, Jesus died for my sins and stops there, that trimmed down gospel doesn't actually give you very much to go on in terms of action. But the biblical gospel, the full gospel, the glorious gospel says Christ is risen. He's the first fruits of the resurrection to come. You and I live life in the middle, between the moment when God's kingdom began and when God's kingdom comes in its fullness. And when we approach life with this framework, it makes a big difference for what we do. It's a general principle in life, I think, that when you have a sense of the big picture and where it's going, it helps you to play your part. At home, if I tell one of my kids, go and get your suitcase and put some clothes in it, they might do it just because Dad said, maybe. But if I tell them, go and get your suitcase and start packing because we're going on a holiday in Disneyland, then the action will happen much faster. Uh, the right things will go in the suitcase and there'll generally be more enthusiasm for the task. Or think about the workplace. If your boss gives you a task without explaining any of the reasoning behind it, you'll probably make some effort to get it done. But if your boss shares with you the company's vision and the strategy for getting there and explains how this task fits into that, well, you'll understand your task better, you'll be more motivated to do it, you'll do a better job of it. And it's like that with living the Christian life. When we have a sense of where the story is going, it helps us to play our part in the middle of the story. And the resurrection of Jesus shows us where the story is going. He's the first fruits. As his people, our hope is solid, embodied, transformed and glorious. And the whole of God's world shares in that hope. 
The Bible says this groaning, decaying world is longing for resurrection day when it too is made new and set free. Understanding this big picture helps us make sense of the tasks that God gives us today. Last week, we spent a lot of time thinking about 1 Corinthians 15, a great chapter that unpacks resurrection hope. The resurrection hope that was hinted at in the Old Testament, in passages like Isaiah that we read today, but which comes to the fore with the resurrection of Jesus. And today, Ron read for us the final section of that chapter, where Paul gives us the so what. In the last verse of the chapter, having spoken at length about resurrection hope and Jesus' victory, Paul says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. At the end of that verse, we have the call to action. Give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because your labour in the Lord is not in vain. But what exactly is this work of the Lord that he's talking about? Is he talking about our embodied life in general? Every kind of work we do, if it's done with a Christ-honouring mindset. Is that it? Our nine-to-five employment, the work of running a household, art and creative pursuits and so on, is that our labour in the Lord? This is not a bad thought. Because it's true that the resurrection of Jesus reaffirms the dignity of the created world. Back when God made the world, I've got ahead of myself, there we go. Back when God made this world, he said it was very good. And he gave humanity what's been called the cultural mandate, the command for us to go off and rule the earth, subdue it and fill it. Now, as you know, after that, things went terribly wrong. Humans staged a mutiny. We decided to run the world our own way, and the whole of creation suffered as a result. English theologian called Oliver O'Donovan, he points out that it might have been possible before Christ rose from the dead for someone to wonder whether creation was a lost cause. If the creature consistently acted to uncreate itself, and with itself to uncreate the rest of creation, did this not mean that God's handiwork was flawed beyond hope of repair? Before God raised Jesus from the dead, the hope for redemption from creation rather than for the redemption of creation might have appeared to be the only possible hope. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And that fact rules out those other possibilities. If God's salvation plan was simply to whisk us off to heaven, to pluck us out of this sinking ship before it goes down, then our embodied life in the meantime would be left as pretty meaningless, like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, feeding and clothing ourselves. That would just be like ticking off tasks on a project that's already been cancelled. But Christ has been raised from the dead in his body, He rose and he ate and he drank and he cooked and he spent time with his friends. His bodily resurrection as the Son of God gives a dignity to all the basic activities of our embodied lives. Eating and drinking, 
working the land, securing shelter, earning an income, making babies, raising children, creating beauty in art and music and dance and architecture. These things are part of God's good creation. And the resurrection of Jesus shows that God has not given up on that creation. I think that in our technological age, especially since the start of the COVID era, our culture has sometimes downplayed the significance of embodiment. Working from home has become the mainstream rather than the exception. And we sometimes forget that you really do miss something that way. If you've got a friend who lives in another part of Sydney, you'll probably just talk on the phone or on Zoom rather than visiting them in person. And I think that as resurrection people, we need to be careful with this. Because true humans are embodied humans. Being with someone physically has a deep significance. Sitting in a church building with other people is a fundamentally different action than watching a church service on a screen. Anyway, the first thing I want to put on the table today is that the resurrection gives dignity to our embodied existence and our work in this world. But to come back to 1 Corinthians 15 and its encouragement about the work of the Lord, I actually don't think that this verse is talking about our work in general. I think Paul has something more specific in mind. Because elsewhere in the same letter, he's used the same kind of language about work or labour in the Lord or for the Lord. And whenever he's used that language, he's been talking about the work that he and his offsiders have been doing to proclaim the news about Jesus and his resurrection. He describes him himself and Apollos as God's workers. He says that his trainee, Timothy, is carrying on the work of the Lord. And so it really does seem that the work of the Lord means declaring the news about Jesus, the risen Lord. It's clear that this work is not only done by professional apostles or missionaries or ministers, because here is Paul urging all his readers to give themselves fully to this work, assuring them that their labour in the Lord is not in vain. All Christians share in this mission of declaring the resurrection of Jesus. And it's because Jesus is risen that what we tell people is news. Good news. We're alerting people to a reality about the world, that Jesus has been raised up as its rightful ruler. It's good news, not good advice. It's a declaration before it's an invitation. In Matthew 28, the risen Jesus says, All authority has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Now, you and I know that not everyone who hears this gospel message believes it. Not everyone accepts this news. Not everyone decides to become a disciple of Jesus. And sometimes that's a pretty painful reality for us. The Apostle Paul knew that truth even better than we do. He'd had people respond to the message by throwing him in jail, stoning him, running him out of town. How then can he so confidently say, our labour in the Lord is not in vain? I think he can say that because Resurrection Day is coming. 
The day is coming when every eye will see and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord. Victory day is coming when everyone recognises the truth of this message. The day is coming when God will say, well done, good and faithful servant, to everyone who's proclaimed the risen Jesus, regardless of what kind of reception that message has received. That's why our labour in the Lord is not in vain. Now, we need to recognise, of course, that our most important tool in this work is speech. Words are needed in this job. Words to groups, words in one-to-one conversations, spoken words, sung words, written words, carefully planned words, off-the-cuff words. Let's recognise that some Christians are particularly gifted in certain kinds of gospel speech. And some Christians are genuinely unable to use words at all. But the vast majority of us can play some kind of speaking role in this mission. It doesn't need to be an intense debate or a perfectly scripted evangelistic presentation. It does mean at least confessing with our lips that we follow Jesus, the risen King. Words are essential to announce God's kingdom. But today I want us to look at how other kinds of action fit together with words in declaring the resurrection of Jesus. In the previous 14 chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul has actually said very little about gospel speech. The main thing he has spoken to them about is ethics, holy living. He's been teaching them and often correcting them about how to glorify God in their sex lives, in what they eat and drink, how they treat their Christian brothers and sisters, how they run their church gatherings. And it's because Jesus is risen and Christian hope is embodied, that's why the way we live in these current bodies matters. It's got a real significance. The believers in Corinth seem to have lost their grip on this. They'd pushed the idea of resurrection to one side and as a result, they drifted into thinking that their bodies are either bad or just meaningless and chaos had resulted because this mindset, their sex lives had gone seriously off the rails in all sorts of ways. And I think our modern Western culture has something a bit similar going on. Although our culture is sex-obsessed, it also wants to say that sex is just a meaningless bodily function. The office affair, the one-night stand, friends with benefits, people say it didn't mean anything, it's just sex. But when we remember that Jesus is risen, it stops us from thinking that way. He shows us that bodies matter. And because he is risen, we don't have to pursue holy living in our own strength. The Bible says we have resurrection power working in us today. Check out this verse from Romans 8. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Now, from its context, we can see actually this verse is not talking about physical transformation in the future, but moral transformation in the present. The Holy Spirit 
sent by the risen Jesus, empowers us to live resurrection-flavoured lives today. Lives of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness and self-control. Those things make sense in our lives now because we are citizens of God's coming kingdom when those things will fill the earth. And so Paul says to the Corinthians, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. This command makes sense because Jesus is risen with a body. And we will be raised with a body. And so it makes sense to honour God with our bodies today. Holy living is part of the work of the Lord, part of our proclamation that Jesus is risen. But there's another category of action I want us to think about. We've been looking at how to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord, how to declare Jesus' resurrection to the world. We've seen how gospel speech fits in. We've seen how personal ethics and holy living fits in. But there's one more component. Christians have a long history of doing good in the world building hospitals, building schools, running nursing homes, feeding the hungry, ending the slave trade. Good works that promote justice and wholeness. If salvation was just about flying out of this world to some spiritual disembodied existence, then these kinds of good works now would they'd still be nice things to do. But the resurrection gives these actions a significance and a meaningfulness that they wouldn't otherwise have. Because when we promote human embodied flourishing, we're demonstrating the nature of God's coming kingdom. The resurrection kingdom, which involves flourishing humans. Jesus himself took this approach when he healed lepers and healed lame people, and freed people from demons, he wasn't just a party trick to get people's attention. It was part of his proclamation that God's kingdom had come near. And doing good is a rightful part of our proclamation of the kingdom that has now begun. Now, there are a few mistakes we need to avoid in this department. Some people get carried away with this, And they start talking about building God's kingdom on earth. And they get so optimistic about transforming society that they expect to make things better and better and better until it seems like they think Jesus will come back and go, oh, there's nothing for me to fix. You guys have fixed it all. It's pretty presumptuous. The reality is that what we achieve in this age will always be limited. Limited justice, limited healing, limited flourishing for a limited time. So we need to not get ahead of ourselves. But there's a second mistake, which is different. The second mistake is to separate doing good from speaking the gospel. Some Christians have thought to themselves, that doesn't seem to be much of a market these days for Jesus as king. But there's a big market for health care and aged care, feeding the hungry. In Australia, the government will even give us money to do those things. So let's forget about the preaching and do good instead When that happens, you end up with a wagging tail, but no dog. You give people full bellies, 
but no exposure to eternal hope. That's a disaster. There's a third mistake. third mistake is people who look at the first two mistakes and therefore become suspicious of doing good at all. Doing good is sometimes seen as a distraction from the real game of preaching the gospel. And if the gospel didn't include resurrection, they might have a point. But in fact, Jesus is risen, which means promoting human flourishing in this world is a legitimate and important part of proclaiming the world to come. It's a bit like this. Here is a very North Epping example for you. Sometimes outside North Epping Uppercut's butchery up the road, there's someone outside giving out a little piece of sausage for you to try. Have you been there on a Saturday morning? We haven't been there, maybe you've been to the deli section in Woolies one time. Now that little bit of sausage they give you, it's not going to satisfy your hunger for the rest of the day, is it? And it's not meant to. But neither is it a distraction. It's a taster. It demonstrates what the full thing is like. It's a pointer to the butcher's shop where the fullness of sausage goodness can be found. (laughs) And it's the same when Christians work for justice and wholeness in the world. We're not going to fix this whole world. But when we do good, when we make efforts to stop human trafficking to protect the unborn and the terminally ill, to stop labour exploitation, to close the gap in Indigenous disadvantage, to reduce pollution and waste, to avoid catastrophic climate change, and so on and so on, we're not wasting our time. We're not getting distracted by some woke agenda when we do those things. When we do these things in Jesus' name, we are proclaiming His kingdom. We're demonstrating the nature of what's coming the kingdom where God restores justice and wholeness to the whole world. That's why Galatians 6 says, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Now, we're nearing the end, and we've covered a lot of ground today. But I have one frustration with this sermon so far. Because as 21st century Australians, you are probably listening to this talk and applying it to yourself as an individual. You're thinking, okay, Jesus is risen, so I have to get out there, speak about Jesus, live a holy life, promote justice and wholeness. And I'm glad to be sparing you to personal application. But the Bible's picture is that this is something we do together. God wants to build Christian communities where this stuff happens. It's not just the actions of individuals, but the culture of local churches that proclaims God's kingdom to the world. Ephesians 3 says that God's intent was that through the church, His manifold wisdom should be made known. Church communities are here not just to pray for God's kingdom to come in the future, but also to illustrate together what that kingdom is like. That's why at All Saints we need to be welcoming all kinds of people. That's what God's kingdom is like. That's why we need to care for each other through all the stages of life. 
Because that's what God's kingdom is like. That's why we need to worship God with full hearts and full voices. That's why we need to take sin in our church seriously. That's why it's right for us as a church together to be supporting the work of compassion overseas, the work of Sydney refugee team in our own city. We're meant to do this mission together. Eugene Peterson vividly describes the church as a colony of heaven in the country of death. And I'll leave you with this quote from N.T. Wright. Sums it all up. He says, The mission of the church is nothing more or less than the outworking in the power of the Spirit of Jesus' bodily resurrection. It is the anticipation of the time when God will fill the earth with his glory, transform the old heavens and earth into the new, and raise his children from the dead to populate and rule over the redeemed world he has made. The church claims this world in advance as the place of God's kingdom, of Jesus' lordship and of the Spirit's power. May this be us, living resurrection-flavoured lives because of our solid resurrection hope. Amen.